Mr. Marshall's going to speak with us today. Um, I would be kind of curious, actually, a couple weeks ago, Mrs. Thompson had sent an email that had some links to articles about light years. Did anyone actually read their homework I read that one of them. week? I think I <laughs> well, after that, I got an email, or Mr. Marshall emailed Mrs. Thompson and I back that he had a different opinion than those articles expressed. And so I said, well, come share your opinion. <laughs> Because, this, this is my thought, even among Christian believers, we are going to have different opinions on some of the um, secondary or different issues. And what makes somebody a Christian is that they believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. After that, there's tons of issues in the world. And you're going to find some Christians that agree, some Christians that don't agree. And so, I think... And I, I looked up this verse, and I'm not quite in context now that I looked it up. But First Peter 3.15 says, be ready to give an answer for what you believe in. Hmm? It says, be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. So he's really talking about for why you are a Christian, why you believe that way. But I thought it also applied to, I'm assuming most of you are going to go to college. I'm assuming that most of you, even though we're growing up in this very for the most part, loving Christian bubble where all of your parents are friends and most of your peers are um, Christians. We're growing up sort of all together, but the world is full of all different kinds of people. And I, you went to public college, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I went to University of Arizona. I don't know where you went, Teresa. Um, I went to a very sheltered school. <laughs> is you are going to have different professors, different teachers, you're going to meet new friends. You should always be ready to, to have an answer for what you believe. So Mr. Marshall's going to share his opinion. It might be different from my opinion. It might be different from Mrs. Thompson's opinion, which is okay. As long as he has a reason for his opinion, and if I decide I disagree with that, then I need to have a reason for my opinion. Now, I'll tell you, because I expect that since Mr. Marshall has written a book and been studying this, that his opinion is going to be very well thought out. And I have to say, I did not pursue science. I, I did fine in school. I got my grades that I needed. But science isn't like my heart, you know. <laughs> so when I hear somebody that does and has really studied, and if I think to myself, I don't know if I agree with that, but I don't know why I don't agree with it. Then my job is just to take a little note, and for you guys, your job is to take a note, talk to your parents, do some of your own studying, pray about it, and then decide. Either you say, hmm, I think he has a good point, and I am going to agree, or you're going to say, I disagree, and the reason I disagree is this because you will have studied it, talked to your parents, prayed about it, and then you can confidently still be friends because mm -hmm. you still believe the same thing about the most important person, Jesus, and you can still be friends because I'm confident of why I believe what I believe. He's confident of what he believes, what he believes. Does that make sense? So that's why when he said, I disagree, I said, okay, come tell us why you disagree and we'll take notes. Mm -hmm. And I think what Laura just told me is that um, Mr. Marshall's very open 
to having you guys ask your questions and share your opinions as well, if, if you want to. Yeah. If you're too shy and you don't want to, that's totally fine too. Just take little notes and then check that out later. Does that make sense? All right. So again, this is Mr. Marshall's opinion, not Carol. Canada, not Mrs. Thompson, not Ode. Ode really doesn't have an opinion. We've never like stated our, this is what Ode believes. Um, other than I guess I'm making a statement now of saying, I think we should hear what people believe and decide for ourselves. All right? Yes, and that's how you learn to think. Right. right? Test everything, hold to that which is true. First Thessalonians. So. Perry Marshall, nice to meet all you guys. I don't really know you, I don't really know you, I don't really know you, I know the rest of you. What's your name? Chloe. Chloe. James. James. Abby. Abby, okay. I'll try. Um, okay, so I got, I got eight topics I wrote down here for you. How old is the universe? How to crush atheists? Um, the story of how science came from faith Genesis, uh, modern science, do they line up? Where did the dinosaurs go? Math proves God. How to achieve 50% results with 1% of the effort and how to build a subwoofer. Um, I could talk about any of these things very competently. Um, so y'all get two votes. Pick two things you wanna hear about today. And I will tally them up and we will go from there. So um, think of the two things, but pick the two things you want. Um, and you only get to vote twice. So I, I'm going to ask for a vote on each one and then everybody can vote two times and I'll take the count. So how many, uh, raise your hand if you want to hear about how old is the universe? One. Two, three. No, I'm going to put my hand down for that one. One, that two. Save what I can. Okay. How to crush atheists. Anybody want to hear about that? One, two, three, four. Okay. The story of how science came from faith. Okay. Uh, Genesis versus modern science. Okay, one. Where did the dinosaurs go? Wow. Uh, one, two, three. Uh, math proves God. One. Uh, how to achieve 50% results with 1% effort. One, two. And how to build a subwoofer. I knew it. Two. <laughs> Um, okay, so my top votes are where do the dinosaurs go and how to crush atheists, wow. And then I got ties on a bunch of them. Well, my, my answer to where do the dinosaurs go is really short, so we can actually skip that one. They got stolen. See, if you leave your laptop at Starbucks all afternoon, will it be there when, you get, when it gets back, when you get back? No. Well, you had all these dinosaurs just roaming around for a long time. It was inevitable somebody was gonna take them. 
I think they go on. <laughs> this cannot really? be okay. If, if, if you were an alien, wouldn't you like take the biggest stuff you could find? I mean, I, uh, then wouldn't it make more sense to take Earth? Oh, it's too big. <laughs> anyway, that's that is that is really all I have to say about that subject. Um, so let's go to. Um, does anybody want to tip the scales? Um, this one, this one, this one. Um, we got we got a tie. Well, how to okay, see where the dinosaurs go? How to crush atheists? How how old is the universe versus uh, between those three? Um, we have like one vote or something. Yeah, one vote. How old is the universe? Two. Um, me too. One, two, three. Um, and uh, how? Uh, Fifty percent results with one percent effort. One. And how to build a subwoofer? Three. Okay. All right. We will cover. You know, I think we can probably cover several of these. So, um, let's talk about. Uh, actually, you know what? Let's start with this one. Mr. Marshall, yes. at the end, can you do about three minutes on math proves God? I have a number of chemistry students who have been learning Avogadro's number. Um, yes, and actually this one is really interesting. This is really interesting, okay? Um, so, um, about uh, 11 years ago, uh, actually, rewind a little before that. About 15 years ago, my younger brother graduated from seminary. Graduated from college, went to seminary, graduated from seminary with a master's degree in theology. He went to John MacArthur Seminary um, and um, came out, he you know, studied Greek, Hebrew, Arabic, all of the stuff. And he ended up moving to China and um, being an undercover missionary by night because he can't really be public about it and being a um, English teacher in a hotel by day. Um, so it was a very interesting job. He's in this very beautiful place in the Yunnan province of China, which I highly recommend if you ever go to Asia, go there. It's absolutely beautiful um, and he lived there for four years and when he came home he was almost an atheist okay um, four years four years from missionary to almost atheist and um, in this whole time we were emailing back and forth and having very detailed theological, philosophical, scientific discussions, and he is like making this major, uh, this major change in his belief system. Now, this was very upsetting to me. Um, Brian is extremely smart. Like, extremely smart. And I specific, when I say what kind of smart is he? He is very, very, very good at 
asking questions that get to the bottom of things as opposed to the surface level questions that most people ask. Um, and like that you hear about in the media and stuff. You know how the media and TV is like usually really shallow and it's just people's opinions. Brian really has a gift for going deep into stuff. And he developed a lot of questions. And the thing was, he's living in China, kind of on his own. Nobody can stop him from answering questions. And nobody can sort of railroad him into, oh, no, we believe this. And um, I think in the culture that he was educated in, it would be done as often as not with really kind of guilt and obligation as much as it, even though it was, a, it was a very intellectual, I mean, John MacArthur's school is a very intellectual school. Nevertheless, there's a lot of kind of, mm, I would say, emotional manipulation that is that kind of, you know, gets, gets used. But he, the point being, he was out of that. And a lot of where I come from comes from spending several years encountering this. You know, when your brother's like the most devout person in the family and he makes this complete 180 degree swing, what's, what's that about? Well, my interpretation of what went, so by the way, and he was dragging me with him kind of against my will. It's like, I like being a Christian, I think this makes sense, but he's asking all these questions. What about this, Perry? What about this? What about this? What about this? And, um, and he was experiencing what a lot of Christian students experience when they go to college. Okay? If you go to college, you will find out, for example, there is an enormous amount of evidence that the universe and the earth are very old. You go to college, you will find out that the evidence for a young earth is very shaky. He was figuring this out. And what the natural thing that happens is, okay, if they were wrong about that, maybe they're wrong about Jesus too. Okay? And, um, and he's like, well, they're definitely wrong about that. And I think they're probably wrong about Jesus too, and he just kind of exited. Um, and I don't think it's necessary for that to be a problem. Um, I don't think it's a problem at all. In fact, I think with a, a little different view of things, um, that it all matches up really well. And I want to be really clear. So, you know, um, Mrs. Canada gave this really nice um, introduction to this whole thing. I want to be really clear that nothing I am telling you is written in stone, and I am not asking you to believe any of it because I said it. I want you to learn to think, and frankly, the only way anybody learns to think is by going head-to-head -head with people they disagree with and taking it apart, strip, if, if it means taking the entire car apart, stripping the engine down to its in, engine blocks, and rebuilding the whole thing, that is how you learn to think. You will never learn to think by memorizing and reciting a set of truths that you are scared to death to ever question. Okay? 
And if you if you look at it's a great story in the Gospels. Um, Jesus wants to. Jesus says to the Pharisees, which is harder, to forgive a man's sins or to say, rise and walk? And to prove that I have this authority, I forgive you of your sins, rise and walk, and the man rose up and walked. Jesus carried proof. Okay? Um... I, in my opinion, when you read through Scripture, hardly ever is anyone ever expected to believe anything on pure blind faith. Christianity is a historical, evidence-based faith. Now, Hinduism is not. Hinduism is almost entirely metaphysical propositions. It is not a historical religion. You read the Vedas. It's, it's a bunch of stories and metaphors and parables, if you will. Jesus was a real person. He walked the earth. How many times in the Old Testament does God say, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt? That was a historical event. That, you know, oh yeah, your grandpa, your grandpa's grandpa, they remember that. They were there. We have this altar that someone built in this certain place. See, this is when it was built. This was why it was built. It's all grounded in history. Christianity is an empirical religion. You know what the word empirical means. Who knows what the word empirical means? It's a great word. Demonstrable. You can demonstrate that it's true. Thomas doubted Jesus. He says, he says, when I feel the nail marks in his hands, when I actually see this guy, I'll believe it. And Jesus showed up and he got to see it and feel it and believe it. Okay? Um, I don't think anybody should believe the Christian faith simply based on pure faith. In fact, the older you get and the further you travel, the more and more and more it will be based on experience. Okay? Um, so, a lot, so, so my, 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 my brother takes this, uh, takes this turn, and I found myself retreating to science. Um, I discovered, I'm going to skip some of the story, but really what I came to, down to was I have an electrical engineering degree. Um, I've been involved in designing all kinds of things and products and systems and stuff like that. Um, I designed the speakers in the 1994 Ford Probe and the 95 Jeep Cherokee and the 95 Acura Vigor. I know, you know, I know about making things. And I said, I looked at the hand at my end, the end of my arm and I said, you know, this is a fabulous piece of engineering. Okay? My sense of God came uh, in large part from my engineering background. Because I, I, I see, oh, just incredible amount of, of, of order in, in a hand. Well, Brian kind of sent me down this rabbit hole and... I started 
um, investigating this whole question of origins and um, and I started studying DNA. Now I should have I should have brought a copy with me. I didn't. But uh, in 2002, I wrote a book called Industrial Ethernet. How many of you know what Ethernet is? The blue cable that plugs in your computer carries the internet. So I write this whole book on how ones and zeros go back and forth across a cable. It's a really exciting topic. And if you can't sleep at night, you can read my book, and it'll <laughs> you won't even you have to take sleeping pills or anything. Okay, but you know, so you know, I've got computer A and I've got computer B, and I've got a cable, and ones and zeros go across the cable back and forth between the two computers and and I had a stunning realization once one day DNA is this helix and it's got these bases as rungs of the ladder and the bases are four different letters A C G T A C G T except they're there, they could be in any order, and the order of the letters is instructions for building things. So they're grouped in threes. So so let's let's talk about computer codes for a second. And by the way, we're still talking about how to crush atheists. But I, I'm gonna. This is this is part and parcel of it. Okay. Um, I have debated with more atheists than any of you, anybody else, any of you have ever met, like thousands of them, um, which I'll get to that. Well, in, in computers, generally, um, data is in, in uh, units of eight bits, which is a byte, okay? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay, and if you have eight bits and each bit can be a one or a zero, then you have 256 combinations. Does that make sense? 256 things you could do with those ones and zeros. In DNA, you have um, you have you have four. Um, four bits, which can be three different ways. Four to the power of three is 64. So in computers, you have 256-bit packets. And in DNA, you have 64-bit packets. And, um, and then there are instructions to build stuff. So for example, GGG is instructions to make an amino acid called glycine. A a, A, for example, is instructions to make lysine, and there are 20 amino acids, and all of the proteins that make your body are built from those 20 amino acids. And so what you have is you have a string of digital code that says, make this, make this, make this, make this, then put this together with this, this together with this, this together with this, and you add instructions on instructions on instructions on instructions, and you have instructions to build an eye, a liver, teeth, skin, a whole human body, a spine, everything. And it's all digital code, and it's fundamentally just like the internet. Okay? In fact, it's remarkably similar 
We didn't even begin to know how similar until the last 30 years, and most of the stuff that the internet was made from was developed long before that. So we developed all of this, these digital coding techniques. So here's how to put the message onto a disk, disk drive or onto a wire, and here's how to detect errors, and here's how to correct errors. And make sure that the message is transmitted right. Make sure that your cell phone call isn't dropped when you like, you know, go across a bridge or something. And we figured out all this stuff. And we come to find out that all the same stuff is already in DNA, except it's more sophisticated in a cell than it is in your computer. So it's a digital code. So now we're getting to the how to crush atheist part. Okay, one, DNA is a code. Well then the next question is where do codes come from? So who can think of another kind of code? Morse code. Morse code. Somebody tell me another kind of code. Like uh, the Navajo code? Yeah, the Navajo code. How about HTML? Okay, that's code. Um, how about, okay, every file on your computer with an extension, dot doc, what's that? Computer code. If, if you have a file on your computer and it's called caden dot doc, dot doc, or dot docx, what kind of file is that? It's a text file. It's a Microsoft, yeah. it's a Microsoft Word file, right? Dot txt, what's that? That's the text edit. That's that's a yeah. sim the simple text edit. How about .xls? What's that? Spreadsheet. Microsoft Excel spreadsheet. Oh, yeah. Okay. .html. Right? It's HTML. Every one of those things is a different language. Microsoft Word is a language that files are coded in. Excel is a different language that files are coded on. T TXT is a different language that stuff is coded in. So these are all codes. Now, all codes we know the origin of are designed. There is no code where we know where it came from that's not designed. Now, stop and think about how you make a code. If, how are you? Hi, welcome. Um, if I said, make up a code and come back after lunch and bring us your code, could you do it? Yes. And just give me a basic idea of how you would do that. Give me a little bit of an example. I'd probably take like a pre-existing code like to the alphabet and then just tweak it. Right. And what you have in the code is you have you have it you have an encode table and a decode table. So the postal code, right? So what's the zip code here? 60302. 60302. So in a postal code I go, I'm in Oak Park, Illinois. What's the postal code for Oak Park? 60302. 
So I write 60302 on my letter and I send it. And then somebody reads 60302, where's that? That's Oak Park. And you go from 60302 to Oak Park. So you have encode from Oak Park to, to, to zip code. And then you have decode from zip code to Oak Park. Encoding, decoding. And somebody sat and they, 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 they took a map, right? And they go, okay, this is going to be this. This is going to be this. This is going to be this. And that's how you make a code. Okay? DNA implies that a choice was made. It doesn't, it, it implies a choice. It was definitely made. It implies that somewhere somebody decided GGG is going to make glycine. AAA is going to make lysine. By the way, there are instructions to make AAA is not glycine. If I take three AAA bases and stick them together, that is not glycine. It's instructions for the machinery in the cell to build a glycine molecule. So it's symbolic. All codes we know of the origin of are designed. So in other words, there's a million codes 999,999 of them are designed by humans, and there's one code we don't know where it came from. And there's no codes that are not designed. Nobody's ever found one. Okay? Therefore, we have inference. We, we have 100% inference to design. What is inference? This is a very important word. You, you probably know. Go ahead. Is it just inferring something? It's, it's, an inference is a very strong implication. It's not proof. So like, how many of you have taken high school geometry with the triangles and all that? Okay, and you do proof, and you're like, you start with these premises, prove that this triangle is isosceles, and you go through and you prove it. That's deductive proof. Inference is when you do not know absolutely for sure, but all the evidence points to that. Inference is the kind of proof that a detective makes when they go investigate a crime scene. They can't replay the tape, right? They're like, well, his fingerprints are all over the weapon. So the inference is he was carrying the weapon, okay? So, little piece of logic. DNA is a code. That's a fact. All codes we know the origin of are designed, therefore we have 100% inference to design. We don't have any inference to any other explanation. Okay? Ten years ago, I gave a talk at Willow Creek, big, big church in South Barrington. My talk was called, If You Can Read This, I Can Prove God Exists. A little audacious. Um, and I explained this just like I'm explaining to you today. 
And um, I posted it, I posted a recording on my website, cosmicfingerprints.com. Now, I did an experiment back then. This was, I, I was still kind of having these debates with Brian. Um, Brian never became an atheist. He, he was smarter than that, actually. Okay. Um, but I was, I was really, I really wanted to know if my ideas could hold up. Because remember what I said 20 minutes ago, until you come in close direct contact with people that disagree with you and like go through the whole process, you're not thinking. You're just regurgitating what somebody else has told you. Uh, and the most important thing that I could possibly hope you get out of this is that you guys get a sense of that you can go into the world, and even if you don't have the answers that you need, that you will be able to put them together, and you will be able to figure it out. And when you get to the end of the process, you'll find out that Christianity can absolutely hold up to scrutiny. Okay? You should never be afraid that Christianity won't. Now, I can't give you everything I know. I can just do my best to reassure you if you go looking for the answers, you will find them. I can't give you a giant download today, okay? But it will hold up, okay? Therefore, do not be afraid of anything that comes your way. There's nothing to be afraid of. So, I wanted to know, can this hold up? So here's what I did. I started, because I'm a Google advertising consultant, I started buying clicks from Google and driving traffic to my website by having ads all over the internet. And on religious topics and astronomy topics, the clicks are cheap. So for example, uh, like in Google, you, you, advertisers pay when you click on an ad. Austin, Texas, driving while intoxicated is maxed out at $100 a click. That's because if you get caught with a DUI in Austin, Texas, you are in bad, bad trouble. And you better get a lawyer as soon as possible, and he will be very expensive, and you will not enjoy the process, okay? Um, however, um, words like astronomy are like five cents. So I'm like bidding five cents on these keywords and I've got ads all over the internet and I've got thousands of people coming into my website. So I post my talk, which you can go listen to. It's easy to find. If you can read this, I can prove God exists by Perry Marshall. And I post this talk. And then, um, long story short, I'm actually debating with people via email, and I'm like, I'm going to put this in front of like all kinds of people, and I'm going to see if anybody can poke holes in this. Because if they can, somebody will. So let's see. Bring it on. 
Well, sure enough, this guy comes along. He's like a really hardcore, super atheist, you know. And I mean, look, you can okay, a a vegan, an atheist, and a CrossFit junkie walk into a bar. How do I know? Because they all told me in thirty seconds, right? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they, they all told me they, they were either a vegan, an atheist, or a CrossFit junkie within the first 30 seconds of my conversation. And that's how I knew that they, you know, like, they're like out there. And this is one of these out there guys. And so we're debating. I'm like, look, DNA is a code. He's like, no, it's not, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, it is, blah, blah, right? <laughs> okay, all codes we know. It's like, no, snowflakes are good. Codes, no, snowflakes aren't codes. Oh, rocks are codes, no, rocks aren't codes. Sunlight is codes, no, sunlight's not a code. And he gets flustered. I backed him into a corner, and he, and he doesn't know what to do. So he goes to the largest atheist website in the world, infidels.org. Uh, at the time, that was the largest atheist, and he went into their discussion board, which was the largest public discussion board for atheists, and he posts a link to my talk and he says, be nice to this guy while you rip him to shreds. <laughs> now, I had breakfast with my friend John, like, I don't know, the next day. And I'm like, joking. I do not want to do this. These are the most obnoxious, <laughs> rude, like, ugh. And he's like, God's got some to you, Perry. All right, so I go in there and I defend myself. That became the longest running, most viewed thread in the history of infidels, and it went for six years. What ended it? They took the discussion board down. <laughs> now, I'm not saying they did it because of me. They actually sold it to somebody else, and then it petered out, or I don't know. But they couldn't make it go away. In fact, so after about two months, it became very apparent that I was having no problem defending myself. None of them were poking any holes in this thing. It was just going round and round in circles, and it continued to go round and round in circles for years, and I would check in about every three months, and I would answer what everybody had said, and then I would go on with my life, and then I would come back in three months and answer it again. And every, but every time I would come back, then all of a sudden all this traffic would pile on, and then we'd go back to the top of the list again, you know, and that, you know, and, and the numbers just keep growing. And more and more people have seen it, you know, it's like how many views, 130,000 views, and all these people, you know, and 1,500 comments or whatever, and nobody solved it. Well, I decided to make things interesting. Um, there was only one problem with my little argument, and that was it would go around and around in circles because people wouldn't agree on the definitions. Okay, they wouldn't agree on a on a on a serious scientific definition of code, and they would just want to make stuff up and blah, 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 and I'm like, okay. I had a realization one day, and honestly, I, I, think, I think it was the Holy Spirit kind of giving me a nudge. Perry, you need to tell them how to prove you wrong. 
You need to tell them exactly what they need to do to prove you wrong. So I wrote a specification. I said, if you want to prove that, that you found a naturally occurring code that nobody designed, here's what you have to do. And I consulted an engineering textbook and I put it all together. You can go see it. It's at naturalcode.org if you want to see it. And there's a whole page and it says, if you want to show that you've come up with a code and never designed it, here's how you do it. And I started to sing people to sing to people on my blog. If you can do this, I will write you a check for ten thousand dollars. And the arguments just stopped. It was really interesting. I'm like, dude, meet the spec, get the check. <laughs> okay? Not one submission in five years. Okay? So I know this is solid. Now, in September, I'm coming out with a book called Evolution 2.0, Breaking the Deadlock Between Darwin and Design. This challenge is, at the, is, is really the cornerstone of the book. Okay? But I, I'm raising the stakes from $10,000 to $10 million. Um, let me explain how I'm doing this. I don't have $10 million. However, I know a lot of investors, I know a lot of business people, and here's, here's how it works. If somebody can discover a code that's not designed and like repeatably demonstrate it, if they can pour chemicals in their bathtub a really special way, you know, and get the communication to go from the right side to the left side, you know, like that. We'll pay them $100,000 and say congratulations. However, if the way they did it is patentable, now a patent is a government document that says, you get to make this and nobody else gets to make it. Like Apple has a patent on that little magnet a connector um, on the power cord, and you yank it, and it you know it doesn't break off, right? They have a patent on that. Nobody else gets to make that because they hold the patent. So what we're saying is, if you can figure out how to make a code without designing one, you've actually created artificial intelligence, and if you own the patent for it, you have something that's worth a ton of money and we will buy the patent from you. When the patent is granted, we will pay you $10 million. So I am approaching investors. We're up to $3 million. I have three investors, a million bucks each. They're willing to write a letter, uh, a personal guarantee that says, if you meet all of these requirements and it's patentable, then, yep, I'll write the check for a million dollars. I'll be a shareholder in the corporation. We'll own these patents, we'll go sell them to Apple or sell them to Google or whoever, and we'll make a lot of money with this because this is very valuable. Meanwhile, nobody solved it. And you don't get to make up stories like, well, 
There were these chemicals in a warm pond, and they self-organized, and they started replicating, and then the first cell emerged, and then the cell began to evolve into other things, and then you get us. You do not get to make up that story. That is not science. It is not empirical. Now, what you will find when you peel the layers in these discussions, you will find some things that Christians believe don't make sense. I found I had to change some of my views in order for them to make sense, but I adjusted my views and, and, and I came to something that made a lot of sense, but then I also discovered on the atheist side, on the secular side, there's a whole bunch of stuff that people get away with saying it's not true, it's not provable, it's not facts, it's not science. Okay, the, the life emerged from a warm pond story being like one of the biggest ones. Nobody has any idea where life came from. And anybody who tells you otherwise is lying. The only thing we know about life is it comes from life. Now logically, you know there had to be a first life, right? So logically, not empirically, logically we know there had to be a first life, but we don't know how it got there. Okay? But if you know, now and of course you can go to my website, cosmicfingerprints.com, and it's all over it. Okay? In fact, you can, you can see me debate this 50 different times with 50 different people and see how it's done. You can back any atheist into a corner in 10 minutes with us. And they have no counter-argument. Now, I'm not saying we can't discover this. I'm not saying it's impossible for, for this to happen. But we haven't discovered it. Does that make sense? So, how to crush atheists. Check. Well, you know, there, there, is, there is design in biology at every level. Now, I'm not going to talk about evolution at all. I'll just give you this. I gave a talk at my house on Sunday night. It was an hour and a half. And it was mostly about evolution. It was some overlap with this. If you go to budurl.com slash teach evolution, um, I got a video up and you can watch the whole thing. There's handout. Now, okay. you got a half an hour? Is that about right? I got till 10. I got till 10, okay. Um, okay, how to crush atheists, um, how old is the universe and how to build a subwoofer. Um, there's a water over there. Can I steal that water? I'm thirsty. Is this? Um, except it's been used before. Oh, that doesn't bother me at all. Um, like used for what? Oh, drink, drink. Or for oh, a scientific experiment. Sorry, I'm just okay. my mouse getting dry and okay. <laughs> I'll pay somebody uh, for oh, it. No, it's okay. 
taking the water. I just don't know what I need to do. I can't tell it's scary. All right. That wasn't water. Now, okay, let, let's talk about how old is the universe. Now, again, nothing that I'm telling you is carved in stone. And you're not supposed to believe any of this because I said it. I think you should go find out for yourself. But I'm going to I'm going to make a case for the universe being very old. Okay? So we have stars that are 100 million light years away. How long does it take for, for light to travel 100 million light years? 100 million years. Therefore, how, how long ago did the light leave the star? 100 million years ago. Yeah. End of discussion. Universe is old. That's all you need to know. <laughs> Why? Why is that? Okay, so let's let's talk through. Now, I said end of discussion, but actually it's just the beginning of discussion because now we need to examine our assumptions and logic, right? So I'm I'm saying, well, all you need is simple division and multiplication, and like. 100 million light years, you know, light is, you know, 180 million, 536,000 uh, miles a second, multiply that out, the star is however gajillion miles away, this is how, so therefore that happened 100 million years ago. So there's stars that we can see, mm -hmm. we can see their light, but they are 100 million light years away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh. Uh, mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you you could look up an astronomy book of like, yeah, this one's 500 million light years away, and it's it's orange, and you could barely see that little speck, and like it's that old. Therefore, that's all the the universe is older than that. Now, really, I think there's only two ways around it. One way around it is God made the universe to look old, but it was really made 6,000 years ago. And uh, uh, something that would often go along with that was, well, you know, God made man, God made Adam, and Adam was a man on the first day, so God can make, I'm like, yeah, but if that's true, let's grant you that, let's say that's true. I don't think Adam had a scratch on his knee from when he fell off his bicycle when he was six, even though he was never six. Are you following me? So like sort of. Adam was made already an adult. Right. If I if I go along with that premise. So then it would be like to say that the star was made with pre existing light already. Right. Right. Oh right. <laughs> right. So so did God make stars with an apparent history that is not real? Hmm. Now, you need to understand something, that you take these powerful telescopes, not only on the Earth, but then you send out satellites with even more powerful telescopes, and there's no obstruction from light, Hubble telescope, and they can see really far, okay? And so, we can see stars that are 10 billion light years away, 5 billion light years away, 1 billion, 
500 million, one, you know, 1 million, all the way. And so because of the size of the universe and because there's so many distances, we can actually see the universe in all these stages. We can see pieces of the early, early universe from 10 billion years ago, and we can see how it was behaving then with these very, 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 very distant stars. And then we have much closer stars, and we have the whole spectrum, and we can analyze all of them, and we actually get a picture of the whole history of the universe just from our telescopes. And it's fascinating. Okay? And it's a very detailed history. You can watch stars being born 700 million years ago right now. Which what that tells me is God's actually put us in a position to gather a ton of information about how he made the universe. Okay? Now, another way to get around, so there's, okay, is that history fake or is it real? I insist it's real. In fact, I'm going to suggest you're in big, big trouble if you go with the, well, that history isn't real. It was just made to be real. It makes God a liar. And you could actually, I could say, hey, you know what? We were all created five minutes ago with our memories intact. And you could not prove me wrong. Okay? I believe in realism, which is that what we see, what you can measure, what you can observe is real. And you need that for Christianity to stay together. Oh, so Jesus just appeared to die on the cross? Muslims say that. No, no, he really died. Like, the Roman soldier saw it, you know, made sure he was dead, you know, did the spear, broke the other two guys' legs. It's all very historical and empirical. Okay? Christianity is an empirical religion. I believe science came from Christianity, and that's one of the reasons. I won't go, won't go down that path right now. Isn't this as simple as the which came first, the chicken or the egg? How people talk about that? Um, because I, I have said I think the chicken came first because I think God made the chicken. Well, I think the chi the chick boy. I would love to go down that rabbit hole, um, but I think that's probably maybe save that for later. Um, but I I I don't think going the that didn't really happen. It just appears to have happened. Path. I don't think that's a good path at all. It it just cuts your legs right up from under you. You can't prove anything with that kind of a theory. Now, the other theory would be the speed of light is changing. So uh, I want to address that. The speed of light is changing. So how many of you have ever seen this? E equals MC squared. Two of you? Three? Okay. Does, does anybody know what this means? I use you. Is it like the formula for some sort of speed? Einstein came up with this. Absolutely brilliant. 
Here's what it says. Energy equals matter, mass, yes, actually, mass, times speed of light to the power of 2. And speed of light is 3 times 10 to the 8. So 3 times 10 to the 8 squared. Big, 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 big number. This is why the atomic bomb is so powerful. The atomic bomb that nuked Hiroshima converted matter into energy. A tiny amount of uranium or plutonium was converted to a massive amount of energy that completely destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Okay, Einstein discovered that matter can be converted to energy and energy can be converted to matter. Okay, so if you're going from matter to energy, you huge. If you're going from energy to matter, it's like really inefficient. Like, okay, got this little solar cell in the sunlight. Now let's see, you know, how many grains of sand I can make. Yeah, well, after about a trillion years, you'll have, you know, the tiniest grain of sand converted from all that energy. You follow what I'm saying? Now, This is a constant, it doesn't change. The speed of light does not change, and we know it to nine decimal places at least of precision, and it doesn't change. The fact that this doesn't change gives you conservation, the law of conservation of matter and energy. Matter and energy cannot be created or destroyed, they can only be transformed from one to the other. If the speed of light is changing, law of conservation of matter and energy, which is one of the oldest and most trustworthy principles in all of science, goes out the window. Now, as an electrical engineer, I can also tell you a whole bunch of other things in modern physics would completely fall apart if the speed of light was changing. Also, if the speed of light were changing, we'd be able to see it in our telescopes. Because the Doppler effect, how many of you know what the Doppler effect is? Read your hand. That word it's, it's when a train, a train is going by really fast, it goes yeah. Right? It's, it's coming towards you and the pitch goes up and it's going away from you and the pitch goes down. The Doppler effect also happens with light. And in, in astronomy, it's called redshift. The stars are moving away from us, and because they're moving away from us, it takes the spectrum and shifts it a little more red. And we can tell from how much it's shifted how fast the star is moving away from us. How do we factor in the fact that this happened like 700 years ago? What do you mean? Like, if it's moving away from us, what if it's no longer there right now? When would we see that? Since the light, if the light were to stop, it would still take however long to get to us. Well, right, so we, you look at a certain star, and, and you only know what was happening. You see it right now, but you 
figure out how far it was, you're like, okay, that is what was going on as of uh, a million years ago. It could have blown up. Um, Luke Skywalker could have stolen it. Like, whatever, right? So you don't know. You have no way of knowing. But I want, I want to give you a sense of physics is a very precise discipline. It's precise to like three, five, seven, ten, fifteen decimal places. It's very hard math. And so astronomers actually put together a very detailed history of the universe. Now, here's what it really tells us. So, how many of you heard of the Big Bang? Right, everybody's heard of the Big Bang. Now, the, the, the phrase Big Bang was coined by an atheist who hated it. Okay? When you say Big Bang, it sounds like a sloppy explosion, or it sounds like a hand grenade. It's actually the most precise event ever. Let me, let me explain that. So first of all, before the Big Bang Theory, astronomers thought the universe was eternal. They thought it had always been here. Can I, yeah. can I, um, yeah. to put what you said in perspective, and I don't know how many of you guys remember it, we watched about a seven minute clip of how the universe is being measured. Um, this is the same thing he's talking about, is what that seven minute, and remember they started and, um, um, I don't remember exactly how it started, but then it said, you know, I'm this tall, this is 10 times, you know, this building's 10 times me, and then it showed, you know, the city, and then it kept going outward. This is exactly what, it's the same thing that that video sh okay. showed. Yes. So, they, a long time ago, they thought the universe had always been here. A Belgian Catholic priest who was a physicist named George Lamatra came up with a different theory. He said, all these stars seem to be moving away from us. I think they were all in one place at the beginning. And everybody's like, uh, don't you bring that Genesis 1 stuff in here. Because <laughs> what he's really saying is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth that there was a beginning. Furthermore, space and time are interlocked. Einstein figured this out in the 1920s. So that means, so as space expands, time goes forward. It means if you, if you imagine it going backwards, when you get to, when you get to the start, that is the beginning of time, and there is no time outside of that. There's nothing. You can't even imagine nothing. Are you tracking with me? Yeah. So it's like all a, a dot expands out at incredible speed at a certain instant in time, and that is the beginning of time. Now, the Bible describes time as having a beginning. The Big Bang Theory fits Genesis 1 perfectly. In the beginning, God, who already existed, in the beginning of time, God 
created the heavens and the earth. Now, I wish I had a spray bottle. I want you to imagine I have a spray bottle. And you know how you can twist it, and you can twist it one way, and it burbles out some water, and you twist it the other way, and it makes a fine spray. The speed of the Big Bang, if it had been a little too slow, it would have been like water burbling out of a squirt bottle. And what would have happened is it would have all gone out, and then gravity would have caused it to collapse in a, on itself. And it would just clump and turn into a big black hole. Okay? Had the, the force of the Big Bang been a little too strong, it would have gone out like a fine mist and you would never get any stars, any planets, or any matter because the matter would just be sprayed out and it would just keep going because there wasn't enough gravity to pull it back in. Okay, the difference between too much and too little is 120 decimal place of precision. In other words, it had to be right to within 0. 0.00000, 120 decimal places. This is how precise the Big Bang had to be just to get stars. So you're saying God created the Big Bang? Yes. So since we have 15 minutes, yes. <laughs> how do we get from, if, if you believe that Genesis 1-1 is, is stating God is the designer from yep. your first talk, yep. God created the Big Bang. Yep. But then how are we going to skip everything up from plants, animals, and people? Well, so, let's go through this right now. Because that is, that is exactly... So I'm handing out a little handout. So, so while um, maybe we'll even we can get through this really quick and maybe even have a little bit of time for a subwoofer or or something. Um, so. Subwoofer. Does everybody else know? Yeah. <laughs> a subwoofer is the same as the base. Makes the makes the you, so you get the you get the big base. Okay. So if if we. If we went to a secular geology book, a secular astronomy book, here's the history that it's going to give you. It's going to tell you that the Big Bang was 13.8 billion years ago. It's going to tell you that the Earth started to form, uh, the, the, then our solar system formed. It's going to, it's going to tell you that, um, that the Big Bang built up chemical compounds starting with simple things like hydrogen and oxygen to more and more and more and more complex um, uh, atoms like metals through, like metals come from exploding stars. Metals are actually built inside of stars and, and you have this whole process that takes a very long time and you build up this complex chemical structure you have the Earth forming about four billion years ago. You have a giant asteroid hitting the Earth, um, striking the Earth, and forming the Moon. 
Um, and that was about four billion years ago. You have a period called the Hadean period, which is, comes from the word Hades, where the Earth was just, you know, this mass of hot gases and everything, and then it slowly cools. Then you have the ocean, you have land forming, you have the oceans um, forming. Then you have the, the first forms of life. You have birds and fish. Then you have land animals. Then you have man. Okay? And any, any uh, secular science book will say that. Now, let's look at Genesis and, and do a cross-correlation. Okay. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning of time, God created out of nothing the heavens and the earth. The atheists resisted the Big Bang until there was so much evidence that they just couldn't deny it. It was not well received at first. Okay? Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the source of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, big question. The Genesis 1 story, what physical point of view is that story told from? Don't read my thing. I want to ask you first. Genesis chapter 1, that whole story. What physical vantage point is that story told from? Looking down at the earth. Okay, is it looking down at the earth? What God told Moses. What God told Moses. And did God, did God tell the story from a point of view? No, he kind of tells it from everywhere. Are you sure? It doesn't necessarily say that he was <coughs> above it or behind it or below it or around it. It does. There. It says that the spirit was hovering over the waters, right? Yes. Uh -huh. Preposition. Yes. <laughs> now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. I would like to suggest to you that everything you read from verse 2 on is told from a physical point of view from the surface of the earth. It's not told from an outer space omnipotent point of view. It's told from the point of view that is established in verse 2. This is very important because the story doesn't make sense scientifically unless you add that assumption. When you add this assumption, it all fits really nicely. So let, let me go through it. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light was good, and he separated light from darkness. He called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening and morning the first day. An astronomy or geology book would tell you that in the early Earth, the atmosphere was opaque. It was full of clouds and dust. So if you were on the surface of the ocean, it would be dark. But then the atmosphere begins to clear, and you can see light from the heavenly bodies. But you can't see the sun and moon as distinct objects in the sky, but you can see their light. God said, let there be an expanse between waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse. So now you have ocean and atmosphere. 
God called the expanse sky. There was more evening and morning a second day. Now, I am adding, I am reading this with two assumptions. And I believe, I believe in making as few assumptions as possible. Assumption number one, the story is told from the surface of the earth. Assumption number two, day is a period of time. The word day is yom in Hebrew. Yom means a variety of things. It means multiple things, even within just the Genesis story. In Genesis 2, it refers to everything that just happened as a day, even though it was actually six days. The word day is an imprecise term. So I'm saying a day is a long period of time. And that's the only other assumption that I'm bringing to Genesis 1. Um, and God said, let the water under the sky be gathered in one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered water he called seas, and God saw that it was good. So far, we're totally fine with any secular geology or astronomy book. Then God said, let the land produce... Oops. <coughs> Mm. Yeah. yeah, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in, according to the various kinds that it was so, da da da, that all happens. Um, then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate day from night, let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. What I believe this is saying is the atmosphere became clear enough to see the sun and moon. Which again is completely consistent with what any secular textbook would tell you. Um, you have light. God made two greats, greater light to govern the day, lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. Um, then God said, let the water team with living creatures, let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the skies. So and God created the great sea creatures, God blessed them, great. God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock. Then God said, let, let us make man in our image. And God created man in our image. Be blessed and be fruitful and multiply. All of this is exactly right according to modern science. It exactly fits it all and it's in the correct order. It is true we had birds and fish before we had mammals. It's true we had we had plants before we had birds and fish. It's true the atmosphere was opaque and then it became clear. It all matches. And there is no other ancient religious text that can even be made to fit modern science. This fits it exactly. You can go into any university, any physics course, any geology course with this interpretation, and it will hold up just fine. And there's no war between science and religion. There's no war between science and Christianity. It all fits just fine. Now, if you want to get into the evolution discussion, you can go to budurl.com slash teachevolution, and you can watch my talk that I gave the other night, and I'll go into that. Uh, that's a very fascinating subject, and um, I just don't have time to go into it. But, let's see, um, five minutes to go. Questions? Disagreements? Would it be possible that if you created light first? Yeah. And let's say that that's what 
they call the beginning of the universe or the Big Bang. If you created that right here, kind of like when you spin a yo-yo around your finger, if you start right here, it goes very fast when you spin it, and as it spreads out, it slows down. So could the universe have been spreading out faster at the beginning than slowing down as it got further away? Well, okay, that's a complicated subject. Um, it's like a gear and how the center of the gear spins a lot faster than the outside. So, so that, that would make perfect sense. Except there's this other factor that's at the cutting edge of physics right now, which is that what, what should be happening according to normal intuition is that as it expands, it slows down. But what's actually happening is it's speeding up. It is accelerating faster and faster. And the, the, the explanation that physicists currently have is this thing called dark energy and dark matter, which pushes it out. And that's like a deep topic, and I'm, I don't have the expertise to explain it. I can only tell you they have mathematical models for it, and the models fit the data, but they can't tell you exactly what, what dark matter and dark energy are. I think uh, there's a there's a guy named Hugh Ross. His website is reasons.org. Hugh Ross, frankly, I stole most of this from him. Hugh Ross has done a fabulous job of showing that modern astronomy and the biblical narrative fit really well. And and I'll tell you when you show this to non-Christian people who always assume that the Bible was just this like you know, silly little stories and stuff. It's, they're a little surprised, uh, more than a little. In fact, they kind of backpedal, they're like, and I'm like, they're like, well that doesn't prove anything, like, how did they get all of this right? Bunch of Bedouins roaming around in the desert 3,500 years ago, how did they get this right? How did they know, I mean, they could have got any one of these things in the wrong order and it would all fall apart, but it's all in the correct order. And again, you can, with, a, with two simple assumptions, you can make the biblical story fit modern science, no problem. I can't do that with Buddhism, I can't do that with Hinduism, I can't do that with any other ancient religion. You know, you read the Babylonian tales and, you know, and, and the, the Greeks and the Romans, none of, none of them have this coherence. So, uh, let's see. How so the, the challenge for, for us would be, do we agree with those two assumptions? Right. And you're welcome to disagree with them. That, that would be what I have to study. Do I agree with these two assumptions and then, and then follow? Right. And what follows? Right. Now, I, you need to know one of my biases. Because I have a very deep science background, I have a great deal of trust, a great deal of confidence in science, and I'm very comfortable with science. I also know how to detect BS when I read scientific literature, and I can tell when they're making stuff up. So I'm, I'm very comfortable with it. So I come to the Bible and I go, I should totally use science to tell me how to interpret the Bible. 
It, it goes both ways. And I use the Bible to tell me how to interpret the world. And most, most Christian Bible scholars don't do it that way. They read the Bible, and they just, and the Bible interprets itself. And I believe what Augustine said 1,600 years ago, St. Augustine said, God wrote two books, the book of nature and the book of the Bible. Romans 1 says, God has revealed himself through nature, through what has been made, his eternal power and divine nature, so that all men are without excuse. And it goes on to say, people know about God through nature, and then they deny God, and they make up stuff, and they get into idolatry, and they get into all kinds of stuff. It says that. I think Romans 1 makes an excellent case that, that what we see empirically, in not, not make up stories, empirically in nature is trustworthy, and it reveals God's nature, and that we should be fascinated with science. The reason, this one right here, I'll give, you, I'll give you the short, short, short version of this one, the story of how science came from faith. Almost all of the early scientists were very devout Christians. Isaac Newton, Boyle, Copernicus, Galileo, all these guys, they saw science as a way of understanding the mind of God by worshiping, by picking it apart, dissecting it and understanding it and doing experiments. Like everything I discover in science gives me a window into the mind of God. And I completely believe that. There is nothing to be afraid of. You are a Christian, God made this world, and I get to go discover it. And I'm not afraid of anything. And because I use the ethic that she described, that I test everything, point, counterpoint, examine my assumptions, I have a reason, I can explain why I believe what I believe, and if somebody disagrees, I'm not going to be afraid with them, I'm going to sit down with them, I'm going to engage with them, we're going to have point, counterpoint, I'm going to learn and learn and learn and learn and never be worried that, that this is going to ruin my faith. Should never be afraid. And the and and when you are afraid, I'll leave you with this: when people study science out of fear, fear never produces good things. It produces walls. It produces distortions, and it eventually becomes a prison. Never be afraid of what of what real empirical science is going to teach you about God. It will it will always impress you. So. That's, that's my talk. So, thank you all. You're very uh, attentive. How to build a subwoofer. How to build a subwoofer. Yes.